You are listening to a Sunday morning message from River Corner Church. River Corner Church is a growing church community of everyday people who gather to worship God, follow Jesus, and journey through life together. You are invited to gather with us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. If you have any questions about something you heard in this message, or if you want to learn more about our growing church community, visit us online at rivercornerchurch.com. Well, a few years ago, the Pope came into town. He flew into JFK in New York. And uh, he was late for an appointment, and we all know what traffic in New York can be like. So he got into his chauffeured car, and he decided to tell the chauffeured car, I really hope you can speed up a little bit. I'm, I'm running late, and it would look really bad if the Pope runs late for this big event. And the guy said, I hear you, I'm doing my best. Well, as time went on, he felt this driver wasn't driving any faster. And he said, please drive a little faster. Well, eventually the Pope said, here, I have an idea. You drive faster and I'll pay you more. And the guy said, that's it. I got to tell you, I've gotten so many speeding tickets in New York. If I, pull, if I get pulled over one more time, they're going to take my license, my chauffeur license. I'm not going to be able to provide food for my kids. So while they were at the red light, the Pope thought for a minute. He said, that's it. I have a solution. How about you get in the back of the car and I get in the front and I will drive and I will go as fast as I need to. And that way, if we get pulled over, it's my fault. Well, the guy thought about this for a minute. He said, fine, that's a good deal. Well, sure enough, the Pope puts the pedal to the metal, and he drives down the highway, going as fast as he wants, almost 80 miles per hour. All of a sudden, and the lights come on, and they get pulled over. This young officer walks up alongside the car, and he just gets a glimpse of the Pope in the background, in the driver's seat. And so he turns around quickly and runs back to his car, and he sits in there with his partner. And the partner said, aren't you not going to write him a ticket? He said, I don't know if I can. He said, I don't know who is in the back of that car, but whoever it is, they have the Pope driving them. (laughs) Sometimes we get so familiar with Jesus that we lose some of the, the powerfulness about who he is and what he brings. There's another story of a nun who, her her ministry in Louisiana was to uh, go and care for shut-ins, people that should be in nursing homes, extra care homes, and uh, in no way uh, could these people care for themselves. And she would go around and, you know, change their bedding, uh, help them get to the restroom, wash them up. And one day, she realized that she was low on gas, and as she was going down the road, she thought, well, no problem, I'll get to this next house, and then I'll get gas. Well, as luck would have it, she runs out of gas in the middle of nowhere. She begins to look through the back of her car to see if she has a gas can or whatever she has. And she realizes that the only thing she has is an old-fashioned metal bedpan. So, frustratingly, in her habit, she walks to a gas station and she fills it up with gas, slowly walks back all the way to her broken-down car, And begins to pour it into the gas tank. Well, just then, this pickup truck pulls by full of a Louisiana good old boy. 
And he looks at the nun with a bedpan pouring into the gas station, I mean, into the gas can. He goes, that's what I call faith. (laughs) Sometimes when we talk about faith, we talk about it as this abstract event that, uh, in all honesty, doesn't really have a lot of substance behind it. This morning, I want us to be enthralled with who Jesus is. I also want us to realize the power of what he says faith is. Katie and I were able to watch a movie yesterday together. Uh, and It's a great movie. It's a story of George Foreman. Has anyone seen it? For those of you that know who George Foreman is, you may be familiar with his story. But if you don't know, George Foreman was a boxer throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s. In fact, he, he was a troubled youth from a troubled background uh, that entered the job corps because he was always in trouble. He had grown up in great poverty, couldn't even feed himself. And as he was in the job corps, he begins to get boxing training. And within one year of getting trained, he was already in the Olympics. That's a fast learner, right? And he wins the gold award. 1970-something, he wins against a, a Russian fighter. However, his fame brings about a whole bunch of problems for him. He loses himself in himself. His ego takes over. And uh, he ruins marriage after marriage. He falls into trouble. And he eventually li- loses his, uh, his belt to Muhammad Ali, who you may know was famous for saying, I float like a butterfly and I sting like a bee. Uh, Muhammad Ali uh, takes the heavyweight championship. And from there, George Foreman begins to have a, a fall from fame. He begins to... Uh, Just fall apart. He goes into fight after fight trying to regain what he thought he once had, only to die after a fight. He literally blacked out and stopped breathing. He had a near-death encounter. And when he woke up, he realized that God was real. And so this story, uh, Big George Foreman, is the story of his testimony, his life. And uh, for those of you who don't know, he completely dropped out of boxing and became a pastor and ran a youth center. And uh, during that time, uh, he lost all of his money. The guy he paid to invest him, as was the case in many people in the 80s, lost everything, millions, like $300 million. And even the youth center was on a threat of being closed. And so he felt God was calling him to go back into the ring one more time. And he does so at 45 years of age, which in boxing is old. And he defeats a 26-year-old to regain his title. And the minute he wins, he sits down and prays. And to this day, he continues to run at Youth Center. It has been bankrolled by him going back into fighting and also inventing the George Foreman Grill, which is how a lot of people also uh, know who he is. Uh, And he continues to be a, a pastor in a small church. But he's also famous for this quote, sports are sports. It's how we carry ourselves out of the ring that matters. Sports are sports, but it's how we carry ourselves out of the ring that matters. This morning, as we look at our last part of uh, this series that we've been in, the time has come, we're going to talk about how faith matters, how we live it outside of the ring or outside of the church. It should have an empowered reality to it. How we carry ourselves out of the church matters. We're going to be looking at Mark 11, 12 through 26. 
And really, from here on out, Mark is just going to spend time on the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so we don't have time to uh, look at that in this series. We'll look at that again in the Easter and Lent season. But as we look at Mark 11, 12 through 26, we're going to bring our series, The Time Has Come, to an end. This has been a series in which we've been looking at how... Heaven is making a difference here and now that Jesus has begun to proclaim the kingdom of God is in their midst and that it's not just something to look forward to someday, but that it's actually making a difference in the here and now. So as we read through, I encourage you to just to pay attention to what may stand out to you in this story that may have not stood out to you before. And I'm reading more text than I normally do because normally we separate these stories and I don't think that's healthy. But Mark eleven twelve through 26, the next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Let me just say, I love that we get this image of Jesus' humanity here. Seeing in the distance, there was a fig tree in leaf. He went to find out if it had any fruit. And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not yet the season for figs. But then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered right the holy city. It's Passover. Don't forget, they've been on this, this journey towards Passover. Jesus enters the temple courts, and he did so. Remember the story before this is he comes in on donkey. And as the case often in this time, when you would ride in as a king or a political leader, you would go into the temple during Passover and make a sacrifice. That's what he's doing here. Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise to the temple courts. And he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this, and they began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went back outside the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go and throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they will say will happen, it will be done for them. And therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your father in heaven may also forgive your sins. Now, as we read this story, that stood out to you, a word, an idea, or a question, something you may not have seen before or grabbed you a new light today. You just shout it out. Yeah, right, he's hungry. And we noticed the tree is in leaf. That means it's like spring. There's just, you know, and... Mark tells us it's not yet the season for figs, but Jesus seems upset that there aren't figs and he curses it. There's a theologian by the name of William Barclay that says this is the hardest 
passage to understand because of this. He says it's so uncharacteristic of Jesus, he almost wants to throw it out and reinterpret it. It feels weird, right? You can't get mad at a tree for not producing fruit if it's not in season. It catches. The, I think often we focus on the cursing aspect and we miss that part. Anything else? What stands out to you? Go ahead, Stu. One of the things that stands out to me about figs, and I guess they just learned this more in recent years, that each, I'm not a fig fan, but each time a fig um, is produced, a wasp has to die you know, to pollinate it. And hmm. The wasp was kind of absorbed by the fig. Wow. So that's one thing that thought, stood out to me about that in probably didn't even know that back in the day, but it's a fruit that, you know, something gave its life, you know, for it, for there to be a fig. That's so interesting. I thought there's an interesting connection there to me uh, with Jesus and the, and the fig, or the fig tree and the fig. So. I was not aware of that. That's interesting, yeah. Anyone else? It struck me at the end that he says we have to forgive. If we want to ask for things, we better make sure our heart is do you know what I think is interesting about that, too? It doesn't seem to have anything to do with the tree at first glance. Like, Peter's like, hey, you cursed this tree, and it really withered up, and Jesus doesn't answer anything about the tree. He just starts talking about prayer. <laughs> Jesus sometimes does some weird things. I, you were talking about context, and I was looking back at the verse right before this, verse 11, and I always assumed that when Jesus came in and saw everything in the temple, he just kind of reacted to it. But it really struck me that the verse right after he enters Jerusalem on the donkey, he goes into the temple and he looks around at everything carefully, it said, and then he left because it was in the afternoon. And it makes me wonder how much when he was in Bethany, he was pondering what yeah. to do with what he saw. Yeah. I feel like he was really probably on edge that morning because he was like, things are not right. Yeah. The yeah. The thing that stood out to me is something similar to that. I never noticed that he also stops people from carrying merchandise. I, I always focus on him freeing the doves and the pigeons, you know, whatever, uh, turning tables over, freeing the animals that are used for sacrifice. But he also stops anyone from picking up and carrying the merchandise. There's a lot of things we could speculate. Maybe in chasing away the money handlers, all of a sudden everything was free at the local Kmart. You know what I mean? Uh, there definitely is this. How did he stop them? Did he actually like get in the way? He's like, you're not carrying that out of here. You know what I mean? That's an image of Jesus. I, uh, it's hard to reconcile with as well. He literally prevented people from carrying their stuff. It's like going to roots and shutting it down, and then when people try to clean up their stand, you just knock the box out of their hand and say, no, you're leaving, the box isn't, you know? <laughs> I don't think that would go over so well. <laughs> Anyone else have anything stand out to them? The last part, the, other enemy, go to them. Yeah. Yeah, sense of reconciliation and restoration is needed, now, I don't know a lot about fig trees. I might know a little thing about fig newtons from time to time, but I don't think that's the same thing. 
However, in Jesus' day, fig trees and figs were extremely common. In fact, it's been common throughout the whole scriptural story. If you think about when uh, the Israelites send the spies into the promised land, they bring back a whole bunch of grapes, pomegranates, and figs. Now, again, if I'm in the desert and that's what comes out, I'm like, you know, I wasn't that hungry, but no, I mean, the grapes sound good. But actually, these things seemingly were something they looked for. In fact, in the desert, the Israelites make a specific claim that complain to God that they have no grain and no figs. Figs is on the top of their list of things they don't have. Figs in, throughout most of the scriptures represent uh, a sense of abundance from God and blessing. For David, Abigail packs up pressed figs and fig cakes. Uh, the figs are used to heal Hezekiah by Isaiah, who's suffering from boils. Uh, there's this association in the scriptures with blessing and healing with figs. Uh, losing your figs is considered a curse. I think I'm going to turn that into a statement, like, He's really lost his figs. I think that'll uh, be a fun thing to say. But the prophet Isaiah talks about when God's judgment comes on a nation, uh, it causes all the starry hosts to fall up like shriveled figs from a fig tree. And that same idea is picked up by John in Revelation. The prophet Micah has this prophetic statement in which he laments when a tree, that, that their, their nation isn't blessed, and that's evident in the way that they have a lack of the early fig. Now, figs had an early harvest and a later harvest. And, and some people are trying to say in this story, by the way, that maybe Jesus had a thing for the early figs and that uh, they don't taste so good. They, apparently, they're very cardboardy and bland. The best ones are in the fall around October. Uh, but I don't think that's the case here. I think the case here is that it was a perfectly healthy tree. Perhaps Jesus had some sort of divine ability, which I like to lean towards and think that he knew that tree wasn't going to produce figs. But uh, for the most part, throughout the scriptures, figs also represent comfort and contentment. Now, Craig Keener, who has researched fig tree growth much more than me, says that at this time of the year, Jesus would have only encountered fruitless trees. It was six weeks away from the first spring harvest of them. And, and so for him, he's roaming through the area. He's beginning to see leaves on a tree. He's hungry. And for some reason, he has this expectation that there'd be fruit on the tree already. He points out that if there's only leaves appearing on the tree at this time, then they would know that if there was just a few little leaves and not many leaves at all, that they would know that not only would figs not come in the spring, but they probably wouldn't come in the fall either. And so I suspect that's what Jesus is seeing here. He's seeing a tree that doesn't look healthy, and he's saying, look, let this thing be cursed. It's not going to have early figs or late figs. But still, we can't get around the idea that it wasn't time for figs to be on the tree, and Jesus is looking for figs. I think that early readers of this passage, Mark's earliest readers, would have connected with a telling in Jeremiah 24. And if you're not familiar with this story, Jeremiah is watching the, the artisans and the, and the political leaders and some of the officials and workers being carried away in a Babylonian captivity. And as they're carried away, God gives Jeremiah a vision. And before him, he sees two baskets full of figs. 
One basket is full of unedible kind of early season figs. And the other one is a perfectly ripe and good figs. Now, Jeremiah has a great relationship with God because this is how that conversation goes. Um, God says, Jeremiah, what do you see in this vision? And Jeremiah said, figs. He then later on said, I also see that they're good and bad. But at first he just answers figs. Like, that's a common thing, Jeremiah. We get that. I showed you figs. Yeah, I'm glad you saw the figs. Look a little farther. What do you see? Well, I see some good figs and I see some bad figs. Now, God goes on to say that uh, basically the good figs represented the people that will hold the faith, that will uh, continue to develop their faith while they're in captivity. He will build them up, bring forth growth, bring forth capacity to know God, and uh, he's going to bring about his reconciliation and restoration to them. But the truth is that there are other ones who uh, God is going to take his hands off him, the bad figs, and some of them are going to be lost in the exile. Some of them are going to toil with their hands forever. Some of them are going to live out their days in exile, death, curse, and banishment because that's the life they had chosen for themselves. They had accepted a journey of sword, famine, and plague. And so from the start, as we look at this story I think we need to realize that the difference a kingdom of God makes in the here and now always will further reveal what God has done in the past. That thing that happened in the past for Jeremiah is now happening once again here. He's cursing the bad figs right before he goes into town and clears out the bad figs. However, uh, we continue to see that this kind of stories present in this story. We might even make some connections also to a story in Isaiah and his sense of judgment on the nations. The, there was not yet real season for harvesting figs, but Jesus doesn't neglect to point out that some trees will pretend to have fruits, and this is one of them. And he's doing something fairly common in his day. Holy people were thought to gain a certain authority over the living world. In other words, uh, the more you walked with God, they believed at this time that you actually would get some sort of supernatural power, otherly, otherworldly divine power, that you could literally bring about blessing or destruction. If you turn on the TV late at night, our TV preachers think they have the same kind of power, but that's another thing. In this story, Jesus uses the fig tree to create an example or a parable for his stories. And, and really, he's beginning to show his, through his authority that there's a judgment, that there's an expectation on God's people. And this is why he made sure his disciples heard it. Now, I imagine that his disciples looked at him quite funny. Just think, you're walking along the trail. You know you're going into the holy city. Jesus is hungry. And they're all looking around for something to eat. And you just turn around and you catch Jesus kind of swearing out a tree. You know, oh, you stupid tree. You're cursed because you didn't give any fruit. And I'm thinking the disciples are sitting there going, he says he's the son of God. Does he know it's not fig season? You know, I mean, they're looking at him with some sort of peculiar thing. And what I think that teaches us is this. Sometimes the difference the kingdom of God makes in the here and now is not so easily discernible at first. You just have to trust God in a season sometimes. There's a difference being made, but you don't know what it is. 
However, after Jesus enters the town on a donkey, he, he goes into the Passover scene where all the spiritual pilgrims have, right? We looked at last week that any boy under 12 within 15 miles had to travel into Passover and take part of the celebrations, the pilgrimage, the sacrificial feast of the lambs. And uh, it's there that Jesus, who will soon be the ultimate sacrificial lamb, announces who he is and prepares the way of fulfillment for all of God's promises through the first testimony. In other words, the difference the kingdom of God makes here and now always testifies to who Jesus is. This story is simply just declaring Jesus to be who the Old Testament promised him to be. This passage has been used by many that I've had debates with to talk about how uh, war is justifiable or violence is justifiable because they see Jesus clear what would have been the outer temple, um, you know, outlash, kind of attack. Even some scholars have called this on those people to cleanse the temple. And Jesus certainly is interested in reestablishing purity in the outer temple. But I think there's more to it than that. One of the things that's said about him and John the Baptist in the Old Testament, in the prophetic text, is that they will remove obstacles that stop people from experiencing God's presence. If you would back up and study the temple, you would find that the temple had always been made for all nations. Now, God covenants with Israel in a unique way, but the temple was always to be a house of prayer, as Jesus says in this passage, for all places. It was a place for all, all cultures to come and experience faith and worship. And we begin to get the idea that Jesus is removing the obstacles that are preventing that, and he's inaugurating what we'll call the messianic era, or the idea that God is now for everyone. And as these spiritual pilgrims come in from the various Galilean towns, they would have had to trade their, their currency somewhere. Each Galilean region had their own temple. And so what Jesus is doing is taking out certain types of people. As they would have came in, they would have had to pay a temple tax, a Passover tax. And there was only one coin that they could pay with. And so they would have to come in with their small village coin, like if we were here, we would have a Conestogian coin. We'd have to translate that into a Lancaster coin if we were downtown. And so that's one of the things that's happening in the outer courts. And of course, it's Passover. It's, you know, last minute. So they're going to give you an upcharge, an interest. There's going to be a fee on top of that uh, that kind of keeps the poor people poorer. And the temple gets a cut of that. Additionally, it would have been really hard to travel with an animal for a sacrifice. And uh, why it would have been difficult is because there's a good chance that your animal would get a blemish on it. And by the time you would get to the temple, people would look at it and go, no, your, your animal's blemished. And, you know, the scriptures say the animal can not be sick or blemished. You're going to have to buy one of our new ones over here. And they would do that gladly for you for an upcharge or an interest or some sort of fee. And additionally, some people would have known that they would have never been able to travel with their animal, and so they would have bought new on the spot. But what had happened was a great act of injustice. The outer temple 
was meant to be a place of worship, for preparation, meditation, reflection. It was a place to sing praise, but it had become a place of consumerism and injustice. And they were making much profit off the back of the poor. What's interesting is later, rabbinic law, so a couple generations later, they're actually going to say, you know what, we should probably stop doing this. And, and they say it does defile the outer temple, but none of them seem to even crack down near as hard as what Jesus does. And Jesus utilizes two scriptures from the Old Testament about clean, when he clears the outer courts. First, he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, and in Isaiah 56, God is telling Isaiah to maintain justice and do what's right. And he says to hold fast and to hold fast to God's justice and Sabbath. And the one who does that will be kept by God. And he says there's a coming moment in which he will call all of creation to restore justice and experience justice in his house. And he's going to make it once again a a place of prayer and worship for all generations. Now, God's house, as I said, was always to be a place for all nations. And the moment comes true in this act of Jesus as he removes the obstacles of worship and prayer. And doing that, he puts a global concern back in the temple rather than just this Jewish-centric act of worship. The second quote he uses comes from the prophet Jeremiah, one of my favorite prophets. Uh, In the days of Jeremiah, Jeremiah at one point begins to rebuke or tell off his fellow countrymen. He shoots straight with them and he says, look, Those of you who are wealthy, you've gotten wealthy on the back of the poor. And you think just because you go to temple and you act all holy and you tithe and all that stuff, that the temple is going to protect you. And he says, rather, God would rather destroy the temple to bring about justice than put up with what you guys are doing. And that's where Jesus quotes from the second time that story. At that time, robbers and pirates had dens to keep their loots. And Jesus is accusing the religious folk of doing the same, that they're created injustice, but hiding themselves in the good graces of God. And we see that Jesus turns on them and their injustice. And the difference that the kingdom of God makes in the here and now is by removing barriers to the journey of faith for others. In addition to that, the difference the kingdom of God makes is an act of justice in the here and now. Now, I'm sure the the priests and the scribes felt their livelihood was threatened. They were making serious money off this. And I think they'd become so blind that they probably thought what they were doing was a good thing. We're providing something for the people. We're just making a little money off it. Uh, And so they see Jesus as a threat to their very faith to their very life. And in this text, it says, it's this point where they decide he's got to go. It's interesting how fear in our life will drive us to such extremes. The fear of losing their livelihood is the whole reason they decide Jesus must die. The divide felt like threat and fear. Fear will almost always drive us to terrible and drastic actions. And I think that teaches us that the difference the kingdom of God makes in here and now will challenge the status quo of the world around us. Right? It will stat- challenge the status of the quo around us. Now, as the disciples go outside the city, they're out in the countryside, and they come morning, and 
They probably went out there at night, and so no one really saw the tree. But as the morning came, and Peter's getting up, doing his morning stretches, finding his local watering hole, his tree, uh, he sees the fig tree that Jesus has cursed. And he takes note. Mark says something special in there. He says, this time they noticed the tree has been dried up from the roots on up. Did you guys catch that? He mentions the roots. It's not just a, a, a blight or a problem with the leaves. This tree has completely shriveled up from the roots on up. And I think that we're making a point here, at least Mark is making a point, that where you put your roots matter. We might get the idea of of Jesus' parable of the sower, right? Where the seed planted is mattered. And he's definitely making a contrast to the people that he's just with in town. What I find interesting in the notices that the tree has shriveled up from the roots. Uh, Jesus is rather talking about the hearts of the people. He is talking about the lack of power of faith. I think that there's probably more to this story than Mark records for us, uh, or Mark didn't know. Maybe Peter never told him. But it seems, anyway, that there's this contrast between the tree and the temple, or alive faith and dead faith. And what when it's lived powerfully, authentically, intimately. And why I think that is because when Peter says, look, Jesus, the tree has shriveled up. Jesus doesn't care about the tree. He doesn't bring up any more conversation about the temple. But he tells them, now let me show you what a live faith looks like. It can move mountains. We've gotten this example of what dead trees look like. And now we're looking at what it means to have an alive, authentic, and intimate, powerful faith. Jesus has just cursed the tree, saying that there's nothing too hard for the person of faith. The person with alive faith has the authority of God on their side. Nothing is too hard for them, for the person. Who has faith? That's Jesus' point that, that through active faith, nothing is impossible. And Jesus tells them when they pray, they should pray standing. Did you notice that? It's this act of boldly believing in God's power, then they're believing what will happen will come about. And in this time, it's important to note that few people kneeled. Standing was much more common posture, but I think Jesus issues it in a different way here that it's an act of being bold. They need to make sure that they are asking of God, that they need to make sure that there's no unforgiveness at play in their life because this will inhibit their prayers and the ability of God's power to work through them. Now, in this story of the mountain, something we missed that the readers of Mark would have got is that there's a story from the prophet Zechariah. And Zechariah has an encounter with an angel who tells him, look, there's no problem that can't be fixed. He said, in fact, it's not by God's, it's not by your might that problems are fixed, but by God's spirit. And then the next thing he says is, it is God's power that can level mountains. That from prophet Zechariah is what's at play here when God says, stand up and you can even move mountains. He wants them to see it's not by their own might, but by the spirit of God. Jesus is using this fig tree to make a contrast of what an alive faith looks like and what a dead faith looks like. As Jesus right? We're known by our fruits. We're known by the fruit of our life. Fig trees are known by 
trees. William Barclay says what he's trying to say is we cannot claim to be followers of Jesus Christ and remain completely unlike the master we, we uh, profess the love. I think in this story, Jesus is beginning to plant what a life of faith looks like. In fact, if you look at Paul's letter to Timothy, he tells them that a life of the Spirit looks like you are ready in season and out of season. See, the thing that this tree did wrong was that it wasn't full of faith. It's fruitfulness out of season. And honestly, the tree did nothing wrong. But it was a teaching point for the disciples. They were to be living by God's Spirit, not by the rules of the temple, the logistics, the normalcies, the traditions. They were to be living in step with God's Spirit. This new, empowering way of They were to be producing fruit in season and out of season. Uh, And a reality that was now open and available for all because Jesus had removed the obstacles. As Paul told the church, he says, The spirit, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. His followers, whoever believes in me will do the works that I've been doing. They'll even do greater things than these. The point of this story, I believe, that the fruit and the power of the follower of Jesus is in in season and not. The difference that the kingdom of God makes in the here and now is that it empowers and equips the follower of Jesus to live by life, uh, to live by power and spirit. I think this is something we have neglected as evangelicals, as Anabaptists, as however you identify. There's an underperformance on a reliance of the Holy Spirit in today's time. Paul writes to his church and commands them to walk by the Spirit. He says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also then keep As I opened up in the beginning, George Foreman said, sports are sports. It's how we carry ourselves out of the ring that matters. And I think that the difference this story teaches us is that it's how we live by the Spirit outside of Sunday morning, outside of our devotional time that matters. We are to be full of power and of the Spirit, producing fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, both supernaturally, but also through love and joy and forbearance, in season and out of season. Those things should be all over us, oozing contagiously as part of our faith. And I think Jesus teaches that moment here in light of a contrast to dead faith because he knows his time is coming to an end. He's preparing them for what life will need to look like. The question we ask ourselves coming out of this is, do we live by an empowered sense of the Holy Spirit? When we pray, do we expect God's Spirit to show up and show off? Do we expect when we put our hands on somebody for them to be healed? Do we believe that when we pray for somebody, there is going to be a fruit coming out of that? This story, I think, teaches us to be in step with the Spirit in season and out. Because if we're not... There is consequences for those who have not, as Paul said, kept in step 
with the Spirit. We'll close out with a song and I'll pray as Rhoda comes forward. So Lord, we just ask that uh, as we bring our time together to a close, that we can see the difference that you're making in the here and now. Throughout this series, we've looked at the various ways you've brought about differences and transformations in the here and now. And this morning, Lord, we see that it comes with the power of your Holy Spirit, the fruit of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, as we go back into the places that we live and work and play, help these things to be on us even when we feel that we're out of season. Help us to stay step with the Spirit. Amen.